0: Welcome to the Wright Family Law Divorce Podcast with your host, Ellen Wright, family law attorney, divorce coach, entrepreneur, and motivational speaker, discussing all things divorce and helping you learn to keep the pain of separation from holding you back. And now, your host, Ellen Wright. Welcome to Episode 3 of the Wright Family Law Divorce Podcast. I'm attorney Ellen Wright, and I have with me today attorney Donna Saber, who's an attorney at the Wright Family Law Group. And we're going to be talking about Massachusetts Department and Families, also known as DCF. And DCF is the state agency here in Massachusetts tasked with protecting children from neglect and abuse as well as promoting family stability. And we're going to be exploring some of the ins and outs that people need to know when they're dealing with DCF, if they have a DCF investigation pending, maybe something was reported and it's sort of in flux whether or not it's going to be screened in or screened out some of the short-term and long-term aspects that people need to think about when they're dealing with a state agency like DCF. Now, Donna has been an attorney for what, 13 years? 14 years, yeah, and she has a ton of experience in the juvenile and the family court working with DCF, so tell me a little bit about what DCF looks like in your practice in the family court versus the juvenile court. How does it sort of interact and overlap?
1: Okay, for the most part, if I'm in juvenile court, that case has been through an anonymous source It's been investigated through DCF. What happens in family court, it's often a judge that will bring in DCF. So if the parties are fighting, 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 and the judge has had enough and says, I need to bring DCF, that's how a care and protection might start in the family court. Otherwise, it's pretty much 100% in juvenile court.
0: So what is a care
1: and protection exactly? That's a good question. A care and protection is when DCF has made the determination that they have to take the child. It is, it starts off as an investigation. The investigation has, has then been, you know, it's been qualified and DCF must first go to the judge and make their case to the judge. The judge says yes, the child is then removed. Then there's the the parties have uh, it's a requirement of 72 hours they're able to go before the court and find out whether or not they can get the children back. Okay, so that's so, the beginning of any case.
0: So the neglect or abuse has to be really serious to rise to a level where DCF actually comes in and takes the children out of a home.
1: It is, and it rises to the level of emergency. Otherwise, DCF can get a 51A, let's say. They screen it in, let's say. They may decide not to take the children, but work with the families. That happens quite a bit, too, where we call it DCF is in their lives. They work with the families. They try to resolve whatever the issue is. When it rises to an emergency and they feel that the safety of the children are at stake, they can do an emergency removal, and that's that's what's the beginning of a Care and protection.
0: Okay, so with the DCF process, if it's a non-emergency situation, it starts off with a 51A, right?
1: The 51A is always the first thing that comes in because that's the that's the mandated reporter calling up DCF and saying it could be a doctor, and the doctor says, "I'm seeing bruises on this child. Uh, I think it's worthy that you take a look."
0: Okay,
1: it it could be a neighbor that sees. A mother drunk next door and calls DCF. They're not a mandated reporter, but they're a concerned person. Um, And then DCF has to make the decision whether they move forward in investigating or not.
0: So if they move forward with an investigation, I think it's called a 51B. That's the investigation, right. So that's if they move forward and then if they don't move forward it's screened out.
1: Yes, but a 51A can invoke an, an emergency taking even before the 51B is is uh, completed, simply because mm-hmm. if they see an emergency, they see an emergency.
0: So how often do you see that with the emergencies under a 51A?
1: That's all the cases we get. Mm-hmm. So they we are hired as attorneys for every, every person in that. The mother gets one, the father gets one. If there's a guardian, they get one. The children get one. The children could have all one attorney, or they could have separate attorneys, depending on what they want to do, so everyone gets a voice and everybody gets an attorney.
0: Mm-hmm. So, circling back to sort of like the family court arena, and when you're dealing with DCF investigations in domestic relations cases and family court, people tend to get really freaked out. You know, when DCF is called, and sometimes they think it's for frivolous reasons. Sometimes it's not. Um, But usually, you know, when DCF comes in, you know the judge wants to see the reports right away, right? How can that really help or hurt a custody case, for example?
1: Well, I have to tell you, DCF is something to worry about. When DCF and and to me, you your behavior should always keep that in mind that you don't want DCF in your life. It can actually, you know, depending on which side of the custody case you're on, obviously it can help you quite a bit. If you have a father, I'm, I'm just using it, it, could be mother or father, but I'm just saying if you have a father that was called in because of, I don't know, domestic violence, it could be, it could be hitting, but it could be just yelling. It could be belittling. It could be um, throwing things against the wall. If you're the mother, that works in your favor as far as custody goes.
0: Mm-hmm. Um do you generally find that people, you know, are able to remain calm and maintain their composure around DCF or do people sort of have a really hard time dealing with these caseworkers that come out?
1: Oh, I tell you that is that's a very good question because there's a lot of anger that happens, but the more successful cases, meaning the children are are quickly returned is the parties that actually have to get along with dcf i think the most important thing dcf will put in services you know generally th- services could be family therapy individual therapy it could be parenting courses it could be anger management courses it could be domestic violent courses. but you have a a battery of of, of tasks you have to complete when dcf comes in your life <clears throat> if you're angry and you're fighting dcf and this is unfair this is unfair that will that will delay your case because at some point with these once DCF has custody of your children, remember, we had to have gone through the emergency taking, we had to have gone through what we call a 72-hour hearing, and the court then determines that, that DCF gets custody. So now that case is an open care and protection. In those cases, the parties that work with DCF have the best results fighting dcf is not a good idea you have an attorney you've been assigned one they can help you navigate anything that dcf may be doing that they shouldn't be doing and that's what our when we're hired that's what we do um in the
0: juvenile court
1: in the juvenile court but the same dcf works the same in the family courts it's just a different judge and a different set of um it's not private in the family courts, where it's private in the juvenile oh, courts, yeah. which yeah. is very interesting. Yeah. So everybody in the courtroom can hear your story if you're in family court, whereas only the parties that are involved are, in, are involved in the juvenile court.
0: Mm-hmm. Some of these judges I find um, take you know these DCF reports for gospel truth. Well, the DCF caseworker went out and. Saw such and such or did such and such. Um, you know, and in some cases, there's follow up, and in some cases, they just totally drop the ball. You know, how does a DCF investigation differ from a guardian at litem investigation, for example, in a family court where you have, you know, a custody dispute where you've got two parents and there is DCF involvement? You know,
1: the interesting thing is DCF does bring a report in every single time that we are in court on a a care and protection case. There have been more than once that I would read the report and say that isn't what happened, because I may have been there. I often tell my clients when you meet, because they're supposed to meet with DCF once a month, when you meet with DCF, let me come. Because all I want to do, observe, because it's amazing how this, the, uh, it's, uh, it's <laughs> you can fix a lot of the errors in the report. If I find errors in the report, of course, I will tell the judge that, you know. There is, the, the interesting thing is that every single care and protection gets assigned a GAL. And this is just another attorney who's not on the case who will then investigate it just like a GAL does in family court, but every case in DCF gets one. They're pretty valuable because uh, that person will go and talk to talk to all the parties, all their collaterals, will ask if there's any, anybody else they want them to talk to. We'll look at all the school records, all the health records, everything out there. Um, and they come back with a, a written report and recommendations. And on top of that, <coughs> if the judge asks or if they'll also ask for casa to do the same thing. And ACASA is a volunteer organization, but they do exactly the same thing. They interview everyone, and they write a, f- a comprehensive report. So the judge is hearing from all sides. They're hearing from DCF. They're hearing from, from all the parties' attorneys. They're hearing from the GALs, and, and, and a lot of times they hear from CASA as well. So the judges feel like they're getting a stronger um, a stronger view of what the story really is.
0: So what do you tell parents um, or caregivers who are involved with DCF and they they can't get a guardian at light of investigation because it's not a care and protections right and they really feel like the DCF worker isn't giving them a fair shake that they're not what they told the caseworker wasn't fairly represented in the notes or maybe the caseworker just had a rough day and confused their situation for some other family that they're working with and they're like, this really has nothing to do with what's going on. How, what are their options in terms of challenging DCF to sort of make the record straight?
1: That's a hard question. We often don't get the record straight, but we try to bring it up in another time. So we'll get it we'll get the, the, the right information in another report. Um what we do as the attorneys for the people is if DCF isn't doing what they're supposed to or has done something that we would question this, maybe not straight down the straight and narrow, we can then bring a motion and we call it a motion for abuse of discretion. It can come under another names, but we're saying to the court that we think DCF abused the discretion that they had while caring for this family. And that's brought, they're not successful too often. Sometimes they mm-hmm. are, but... It, it is true that it, it does appear that DCF has a stronger side than the other sides, but I, you know what? If the parties are doing what they're asked to do, if the parties are, are doing the programs, doing the therapy, and ultimately if they actually can state in words what happened, what happened, why the child was removed, what the potential trauma was to that child, that's the best way to get the children home.
0: Every so often people will appeal some sort of a finding, right? So if there was um, maybe the case was screened in and there was, um, you know, substantiated concern or there was some other finding by DCF that a parent or caregiver doesn't agree with, they can appeal it, right? There isn't a procedure for that. Can you talk a little bit about that and how likely people are successful with these appeals?
1: There's two places that you can appeal a judgment. One is at the 72-hour hearing. The 72-hour hearing is the initial hearing to determine whether or not DCF is going to keep the children or not. So it's just a trial. It is, it is a trial. There's evidence brought in. There's, there's testimony taken. And then the judges decide. But do keep in mind the judges already allow DCF to do an emergency removal. So so the parties are have you know at least you know one check against them because the judge has already seen this. Now it was a one-sided report for sure. The parties can appeal this decision. Uh, the likelihood is it's it's a low it's a low chance of of winning because in an appeal you're saying that the judge made a mistake in the ruling, not that you get a second chance at the trial. You're saying with all the evidence and the testimony presented, the judge erred. And that doesn't happen too often. Um, the second time you can do this is at the final hearing. Um, that's, that's at the end of the case. Well, actually, there's a few other places, but we'll talk about this one. And this is at the end of the case where DCF is now going forward and saying, I want permanent custody. Permanent custody um, does not necessarily mean the children, the parents lose their rights. So that's a different subject. But the permanent custody hearing is, is is again, the same, very similar to the 72-hour hearing, other than we have like a year of progress. We have a family care plan that DCF gives the parties, and in that family care plan, each person in that party could be mom, could be dad, could be the children. They all have tasks, and that is really what's challenged at the final hearing. Has they have the parties done what they were asked to do do they understand what happened and what's the likelihood of that to happen again that's really what the judge is determining
0: so we're going to talk about what a fair hearing is following a dcf finding of neglect or abuse so after a finding of neglect or abuse by dcf individuals generally have 30 days to make a written request for a fair hearing following any kind of a supported finding of neglect or abuse by DCF. And on the DCF website, they have the purpose of the fair hearing um, set forth as follows. And I'm taking this directly from the DCF website. The department strives to provide services to clients equitably and fairly. Toward that end, clients, these are people involved with the DCF framework shall have the opportunity to appeal certain matters via a fair hearing process and to present other matters to the department via a grievance process. The fair hearing process is designed to enable a client who is dissatisfied with certain actions or inactions by the department or a provider under contract by the department to present his or her position in an informal hearing and to receive a just and fair decision from an impartial hearing officer based on the facts and applicable policies, regulations, statutes, and or case law. So in general, DCF informs parents and caregivers in writing when it enters a supported finding of neglect or abuse. This written notice usually includes Instructions regarding the timing and method of appealing a decision, but a lot of times people don't understand it, or I find that they don't sort of always get the notices timely. It's important that people follow these instructions to prepare for the fair hearing appropriately. So, what does an informal hearing look like exactly in um, the DCF arena? The alleged perpetrator and his or her lawyer can attend the hearing. A fair hearings officer is sort of the informal judge, is the arbiter of the hearing, and then there's gonna be assorted representatives from DCF, usually the regional office personnel that conducted the investigation in the first place. Both the individual and DCF can call witnesses, so it is an evidentiary hearing, although they do say it is informal, but that still means you can call witnesses, you can have exhibits, documents can be subpoenaed, um, and... If the case has really particularly serious or more egregious allegations, DCF might call additional witnesses other than just the caseworkers who went out and did the investigation in the first place. So at the end of the hearing, and both sides have sort of had an opportunity to present their platform to the hearings officer, um, people go home and they're gonna have to wait. Usually it's a period of some weeks or months for the DCF hearings officer to issue his or her decision. And when they do that, they have to sort of get some clearance further up the food chain from DCF managers in Boston to approve the issuance of that decision.
1: Enjoying this episode of the Wright Family Law Divorce Podcast? Get even more valuable insights about how to deal with the Department of Children and Families in your custody case by downloading our complimentary e-guide, How to Survive a Massachusetts DCF Investigation, today. Go to rightfamilylawgroup.com forward slash guides. That's rightfamilylawgroup forward slash guides and
0: grab your free copy today. DCF statistics. Let's talk about some of these between 2019 and 2020 because we had the pandemic, of course. So I'm taking these off of the Massachusetts website for the Department of Children and Families. At the end of 2020, 24,473 families were being served by DCF, whereas in 2019, DCF served approximately 45,000 families. In 2019, of that 45,000 number, that included more than 80,000 children age 17 and under. In 2020, 86,315 children um, were being served. So we know that the number went down drastically from 2019 to 2020 and we can safely say that it isn't because of any kind of decrease in child abuse and neglect certainly i think it was in due in large part to the shutdown and the fact that a lot of these mandated reporters like teachers doctors, um, police officers didn't have sort of the one-on-one contact with these families to make the reports of um, abuse and neglect. So what have you seen in terms of the DCF caseload reflective in the court considering these numbers? In 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 2020, the numbers
1: did go down. Everyone knew it, and everybody knew the abuse was still going on. And although in in many families, COVID was kind of fun to have everybody around, in these families, I think everybody knew that there was a lot of children suffering. It's very busy right now. Very, very busy. So busy that even the western side of the state, they don't have the attorneys they need, so they're trying to grab the eastern side of the state attorneys to take the western side of the state cases. So it's, it's a big problem um, and I bet you're going to see the number in 2021 be much higher. Mm-hmm. They were running out of foster cares the, um, the residentials are filling up yeah it's a it's a big problem.
0: DCF in the news there was a case recently DCF was under investigation I think for some years um, I think it's settled where they DCF had discriminated against parents with disabilities. Um, have you heard anything about that? No.
1: And you know, that was behind me. When DCF gets in trouble, they go overboard to, to fix it. And, and I say that in, in ways that sometimes we believe that they're so incredibly strict or they're, to return the children. And it usually has to do with prior, maybe they, you know, because children do die in DCF. I'm not sure if they die at any higher rate than, outside of DCF but when a child is in DCF custody and dies it is a really big deal and so everything tightens up.
0: DCF is one of the busiest state agencies in Massachusetts, and I think that's probably the case in other states as well. In New Hampshire, um, sort of the DCF equivalent is DCYF, right? It's the Department of Youth yes, and yes. Children and Family Services, and I think in other states it's called different things. But basically, these state agencies serve the same function, right? Yes. Um, And I think the common thread is that these state agencies, whether it's Massachusetts or elsewhere, they're chronically understaffed and they're underfunded and a lot of these families are getting the runaround. What do you tell families who feel like DCF has just sent them on a wild goose chase and they can't get anywhere in terms of getting returned phone calls, returned emails?
1: There's a few things that I, I do, but the, as I said, the number one thing is if DCF has gotten custody of your children, fighting at that point will not do you any good. You're not in a place of power to do it, DCS has the children. There are other times you can come back at it, but right then, when you're fighting to get your children back, you better make work as hard as you can to have some decent relationship with your caseworker. They don't make a lot of decisions. to caseworkers; it usually goes up the line to supervisors and their and their supervisor. So you have to keep that in mind. Um, but I have to tell you, if you can't, that's what your attorney is there to help. If you're, you'd be surprised how much communication happens when you start uh, sending emails to DCF when you're in your attaching the attorney's name. I often tell my clients who are having problems contacting their caseworker. Is start the email train, put put your attorney on it, put the caseworker on it, put the caseworker supervisor. The reason is is because all of that gets saved in what we call the DCF dictation. All of that could be used in a trial. Phone calls, text messages, they don't. They don't. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes a client will say, I call and call and call, and the DCF worker might say, They never call me. They never return my calls. So a written trail is right. is, is 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 a good idea.
0: Yeah. You know. keeping, a, keeping a written trail really just is invaluable. It you know? certainly is. Yeah. Um, I've also told my clients that um, when DCF, if DCF is coming out to do um, sort of a home visit, right, to inspect the house, the apartment, whatever it is. Um, you know, get rid of, if there's any alcohol in the refrigerator, make sure it's gone. Um, make sure, you know, that you your house is clean. There's toothbrushes present in the bathroom. Um, you know, you want to put your best foot forward with DCF. Um, and, you know, keeping that in mind.
1: That's a very good point. A very, very good point. Because you might also have... Uh, The court probation coming out to to visit your house as well. But yes, I I say get rid of everything. Yes, alcohol is legal. Yes, marijuana is legal. Get rid of it. Empty the
0: ashtray.
1: While the children are gone, you need to live a clean life. The other thing I tell clients, shut down all, absolutely all of your social media. Shut it down the moment those children are taken. Social media has never provided a good platform because it's used to find dirt. It's used to find dirt what you posted, what you liked, mm. what somebody else posted. Mm-hmm. It has never been a benefit to someone shut it down. Many people won't they're kind of addicted to it, but it it has come into and it has been used very much as a negative tool in court. DCF searches it, mm-hmm. uh, opposing counsel search it, it's right. not a good idea. Right.
0: And I know in some of my cases, um, you know, when there's you know, a custody dispute, you know, and DCF is involved, even if you shut down um, sort of or like what do you call it? Um, If you defriend someone or block someone and you think that there's no one sort of from the other camp scoping out your page, that may not necessarily be the case because they might have a friend of a friend who sees your post and it can still get back to them. Absolutely. So, you know, I mean, I've had people come in with screenshots from Facebook with some pretty incriminating behavior.
1: If you've got your children taken from you, you have to clean it up. You have to clean it up. You know, you, you, you really shouldn't be going out to bars. You really shouldn't be doing any behavior at that point. It doesn't last forever. It lasts for a short amount of time, usually six months to a year, you know, but um, clean it up. Right. Do not bring new boyfriends in. Bring new girlfriends in. Yeah.
0: And do not lie to DCF. Oh
1: wow. If you, you lie to
0: DCF, you will be discovered. I mean it
1: will be discovered and it goes against you every single time. They will bring it up in trial. They don't trust you. Yeah, if this is a time to really kind of relook at your life. It's and to be honest, in some families, it's a blessing if they use the time because they might have been going down a Path that could have been very dangerous.
0: But when people lie to DCF, I feel like what a lot of times they don't realize is if they tell DCF one thing, but you have some other credible collaterals that are talking to DCF, maybe the pediatrician or, um, you know, the, a teacher or some other person that has some contact with the child's life that carries some credibility. If you have a couple of sources, or even one that tells DCF something different than what you told them, um, that just is going to derail your any kind of credibility with DCF and you're not gonna be able to get it back when that happens.
1: You don't, you don't get it back. There's three, three kind of major cases and this is the way I, there's others, but for the most part, you have, you have your domestic violence case, you have your drugs, case, substance abuse case, it could be alcohol, and then you have your mental illness case. The, 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 the worst in DCF's mind is always domestic violence because that hurts the children the most. The easiest of them is the just the strict mental illness because sometimes somebody got off their drugs, sometimes it's a mom that was pregnant who couldn't take her drugs, but once they get back on their drugs things usually go very smoothly. Domestic violence is a very difficult one because they could have a lot of different personality types in that one and again the drugs substance abuse is always they have to get clean before they get their kids back
0: what if dcf recommends services that aren't appropriate for one family's particular dynamic like let's say for example um I don't have a driver's license, and I have no way to get to the AA meeting that DCF wants me to go to, or I can't get to um, therapy sessions that DCF is recommending that I get to, Um, and I can't comply with the service plan that DCF is recommending due to circumstances outside my control. What do I do?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because DCF will provide, um, sometimes you know, transportation. They'll provide vouchers. There might be buses. It's really, and if you're definitely stuck in a place that you can't do, I would find an equivalent alternative to suggest to GCF or definitely get your attorney involved.
0: Does DCF work with families in terms of a service plan? Like, if they recommend something, can I negotiate with them for something that I think is better or more doable?
1: You absolutely can. You absolutely can. I would always recommend your attorney be there. Um, But it's the the bigger picture in this, the biggest picture in this, is you're doing all these services. You're doing all these extra things, you know, because DCF asked you to do. But ultimately, they're looking for the parent to understand what happened, to understand the impact that had on their children. That's actually the, the hardest, it's the insight. Um, that's the hardest part, and I have, I can't tell you how many clients I've had that has done everything. They checked the boxes, they completed this, they completed that, yet they don't have insight. They're still thinking that that the uh, trauma the children went through was because of removal, which is very true, but why'd they get removed? You know, those are sometimes it's hard for people to just swallow what happened and move on. But that's that's the difference. DCF, as as they should, the worst thing for them is to have that child returned. And sometimes those children are returned more than two times, sometimes three times. Usually, if you're going on to the fourth time, you're probably not going to get those children back because that's just devastating to the fam- to the children.
0: Right. If I'm involved in a DCF investigation, and DCF is asking me for collaterals to talk to, who should I tell DCF to talk to? I mean, what is a collateral and what Well, DCF
1: will never ask to talk to a collateral. That might be a GAL or a CASA. Collateral is just a friend or somebody that can speak for you. As I said, it could be a healthcare professional, could be therapists, could be, gosh, could be be relatives, you know, to, to ask what happened. Um, But that's what a collateral is. It's somebody that you feel will speak well on your behalf.
0: So DCF might talk to collaterals, but they don't always. Is that fair to say? They don't.
1: They don't, but they will do. So the, the minute you're in, you know, the, the case was accepted, the children in DCF custody, they're going to ask you to sign waivers to all of your... Healthcare providers, uh, your mental health specialists. You can put limits on what they can talk about, but denying to sign the waiver is not a good idea. That caseworker needs to find out how you're doing through talking to other people. Um, because there are many times when the, the mother, the father says one thing, the DCF worker calls up the therapist and finds another. It could be just in attendance but you need to sign the waivers. Well,
0: talk, talk about the waiver. They, it's a waiver of what exactly? And when do they give it to you?
1: Right away. So it's a waiver of, it allows you to talk to the person. So I was going to okay. say a waiver of confidentiality to a point. Okay. You, you can limit some of that. But they need to be able to call the physician, call the therapist, call whoever it is you're working with, and um, talk to them and say, and sometimes DCF says, I really want you to work on this with this client. This is what she's having, this is what we see she's having a difficulty or he's having a difficulty with. Sometimes moms get pregnant while the other children are in DCF custody. At those times, you'll find a DCF worker coming and saying, I want you to sign a waiver so I can talk to to your obstetrician. In those cases, we say, don't do it. Don't do it. That child is not in DCF custody. There's no reason at all. For that DCF worker to know about what's going on with the new baby, um, but you know, otherwise, you should probably sign. You should probably talk to your attorney, uh, you know, about what to do. But it's not a good idea to fight because you're not going to win that fight.
0: Under Massachusetts statute, DCF is supposed to complete the 51B investigation in 15 days. In practice, though, the investigations can sometimes take a lot longer than this. And sometimes it's due to factors beyond the parent or the caregiver's control. And, you know, again, DCF is chronically understaffed, chronically underfunded. Um, and we know that the longer an investigation goes on, it poses more risks. Um, but it also gives parents more of an opportunity to sort of get on their feet and start really engaging with DCF in terms of the services that are offered. What do you think are some of the pros and the cons of having a longer drawn-out investigation like what often happens?
1: When it comes to the removal of the children, whether a 51B is complete or not, it almost makes no difference because the decision was made to remove. And that very well could be made very quickly just on the 51A. So the investigators go out, They see what's going on and they make a decision right then and there. That's long before the 51B even started. So I don't see a, when, when the children are removed, I don't see a big deal with that one. What about
0: if the children are left in the parent's custody during the course of the investigation and the investigation goes on and on? So
1: when I had one case where the mom was a little bit, she grew up in DCF actually, so she knew DCF very well. She knew right away. To jump on services, so the minute anything happened, she jumped on all the services she could. She she started it at long before DCF even put the service plan together. In that case, we were able to get that child re- returned very very quickly, um, even if it was just DCF had custody and they and they and you know they gave physical custody to mother. It worked, you know, it still worked because uh, mother got to have the child even though DCF was still in her life. Um so I don't know that as I said, the investigations, whatever it is, you got to be truthful and you cannot deny. Sometimes DCF is mandated to um, find families. They'll find family or friends to put the children. That's the first thing they, they need to do. So sometimes we're at the 72 hour hearing. you might have a grandmother that says, "I want to take the child." The grandmother may get on the stand to tell the judge, you know, what you know, how she can, you know, what's her background. What's the, you know, how she can provide for the children. One of the things that will hurt your case every single time is if you deny what happened. If you deny, like let's say they said, you know, mother was drinking and grandmother gets on the stand, DCF attorney says, do you, do you know why the children were removed and grandmother says, yeah, they said she was drinking, but my daughter doesn't drink. The case is over. The children are not going to grandmother's. Everybody needs to... I mean, you don't even have to believe it, but you just need to not deny it.
0: Right. You know. So when there's credible evidence that you have done this, there's, it's sort of coming from multiple sources, there's a pretty solid case, to deny it is just going to sort of take away from your...
1: Your ability to care for the kids if you're a third-party person, but the parent also needs to know why it happened, because that's, that's really what they're looking for. Do you know what happened? What are you doing to change that so it will never happen again? Do you know why? what this kind of behavior does to your children? We have this whole group of people out there that truly are living with childhood trauma. They grow up, they become parents, they become grandparents, but the childhood trauma is still there, and it's affecting many of the behaviors
0: so after a 51a investigation is done and there's made a determination to screen it in or out dcf has to make one of three findings with respect to neglect or abuse that's supported unsupported or substantiated concern and that's sort of what we've been talking about is when it comes back as supported or substantiated concern, DCF has taken the kids, or DCF leaves the kids in the parents' custody and has some ongoing involvement. Now, when this happens, parents and caregivers can challenge these findings and it's done through a fair hearing or filing a grievance with DCF. Now, I tell a lot of people that DCF, has to tell you what your rights are as a parent or caregiver um they're required to do that but you cannot take legal advice nor should dcf be giving legal advice to parents or caregivers you know things such as oh well you don't need to talk to a lawyer you know there's no need you know to just cooperate with us sort of like well we are the pied piper follow us right um and when they develop this service plan, um, you know, before jumping on board and signing it, like we had said, I think that you really need to dig in and see if this is going to be workable. And like we had mentioned, if it's not, or you think that something would be a better fit for your situation, to go back to DCF, either through your attorney um or on your own and just tell them listen i this is okay but i think this could be better and here's how it could be better
1: yes and i agree with that one of the things is to come back not just to say i don't want to do that come back and say this would be better for me and why it's just saying no it just doesn't work it sounds belligerent a dcfo there's no question at all that they can overwhelm you with services. I especially feel bad when I see some of the men that, you know, and maybe, and everybody gets a service plan, even even if that child never lived with you, and you really don't expect the child to come back to you. DCF gets involved, they give you a service plan. I've had more than one man that says, I cannot do it because I work, I can't do this. And there there is such a truth to that, that, you know, We want our, the people to work, we want the moms and the dads to work, but they lose jobs. They lose jobs mm-hmm. based on all the services they have to do, and then of course there's quite a few court appearances, and, the, and some, so many of the jobs are saying, no, you can't do it. Um, yeah, then there's a problem. That's definitely an issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Donna. Thanks so much for joining us today. This has been really fantastic. I know you're super busy. You've got a ton of casework, and I sort of pulled you away from your desk to do this. Um, it's been a pleasure, but I, Ellen. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today, and we will see you next time on the Right Family Law Divorce Podcast. Thank you.